0: with the name Isaac Newton, right? Legend has it that he was sitting under an apple tree, an apple fell, hit him in the head, and that's how he discovered the laws of gravity. But as you know, we probably never would have heard of Newton if it had not been for Edmund Haley. Haley was the one who kind of behind the scenes was encouraging Newton to write down his observations to test his hypothesis. He actually came alongside of him and corrected his mathematical errors and things like this. He was the one who went to him and really encouraged him to write a book. It was was Newton's best-selling book. And beyond just encouraging, he edited the book. He helped publicize the first edition of the book. And he even financed the the whole process, even though Newton was far wealthier than he was. Historians say that uh, Haley's contribution to Newton's life was one of the most selfless acts in the history of science. Um, and Newton was the one who went on to receive all the awards, all the accolades, all the fame, all the honor, all the respect. Haley, well, we probably wouldn't have even heard of him except for a comet that he discovered that comes around about once every 76 years, Haley's Comet. But a biographer who wrote about Edmund Haley said this, that Haley, he didn't care who got the credit. He just wanted his life to advance the cause of science. That was his mission in life, to advance the cause of science. He was crystal clear in his mission and what his, his life uh, wanted to count for. And so the thing is, as the church, as believers, we have a very crystal clear mission in life as well, a very clear reason for being. The early church understood this. They were confused about some things, but on this they were crystal clear clear. Tertullian, a church leader, he wrote in around 200 AD, and he said this about himself and fellow believers, about their responsibility of bringing the gospel into all of culture. This is what he wrote. We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, company, senate, forum. We have left no territory uncovered except inside the temple of your gods. What he's saying is, hey, Christianity, it's a, very, it's a relatively new thing here, a new movement, but we understand our mission is to take the light of Christ into all of culture. Let's infiltrate it. Let's get it out there. Let's share Jesus and impact people. And so they were very clear on this. It was said that the most sacred duty of a new believer was to share Jesus with their friends and family. Justin better known as Justin the Martyr, he was killed in 165 AD for the faith, he coined this phrase that we are all informal missionaries. And he said that the advancement of the gospel happens because informal missionaries simply share the light they've received with other people. And unfortunately, though, today, the American Evangelical Church is not so crystal clear on her mission anymore, George Barna, in his research, he says that well over half of those who attend an evangelical church regularly do not believe that disciple-making is commanded, that it is simply optional. So, as we continue our Christmas series, Into the Light, John will write about an example to the early church and to us of someone who understood his mission crystal clear and what his life should count for. Let's go ahead and check it out together. It's John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. John 1, 6 through 13, John writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John begins this section introducing us to John. Now this is John the Apostle introducing us to John the Baptizer. Whenever John the Apostle writes about himself, he simply says something like, the disciple who Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. Here he's talking about uh, John the baptizer, and the main thing he wants us to know about John is that he was a witness. Okay, he uses this over and over and over again in the first chapter here as he's talking about John, his life, and his ministry. He says it seven times, actually. If you want to circle this, write it down. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness. Verse 8, he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 15, John bore witness about Jesus. Verse 19, and this is the witness of John. Verse 32, and John bore witness. Verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God of God. So, hey, John's a witness. That's that's what he wants us to get. He's a witness. And you know what? For all of us who've received the light, we are to be witnesses. Has it ever occurred to you that that God has not called us to be lawyers, right? He's, He's not called us to be his attorneys. He's called us to be witnesses. You know, if he called us to be attorneys, if he called us to be a lawyer, it'd be really easy to say, God, you know, I'm not ready yet, I haven't passed the theological bar exam, or I don't have these abilities, I don't have these skills, I'm not, I'm not very eloquent, I'm not a people person, I, whatever. We could throw whatever excuse we want and say, I'm not ready yet, I'm not qualified, if we were to be lawyers, if we were to be attorneys. But God hasn't called us to be lawyers or attorneys, he's called us to be his witnesses. This is great news, because a witness, you don't have to be a great thinker. You don't have to be an eloquent speaker. You simply have to tell the truth. The whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's the role of a witness. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't study. It doesn't mean we don't study our Bible. No, quite the contrary. It's just we study for a different reason. We don't study the Bible so that we can win arguments or prove points or convince. No, no, no. Not necessarily. The primary reason for studying the Bible is to deepen the relationship so that we know God better, more fully, more alive. That, that's the purpose. And so, as attorneys, as lawyers, it's all about proving points, it's winning arguments, it's convincing. It's not the role of a witness. That that could be part of it, but the primary role of a witness is to simply speak the truth. And in our case, also live the truth to demonstrate to a watching world hey this is the truth it's the whole truth it's nothing but the truth and we need God's help to do it right we need God's help to live this way we need God's help to speak these things but it is the role of a witness that we have it's the role of a witness that John had and he's the example to the early church that they're often pointing to wow you see how what John gave up how he lived and so this is what John wants us to understand about John He's a witness. And who's he a witness of? Jesus, the true light. And so John's saying, hey, I'm not the true light, right? Jesus is the true light. I'm simply reflecting the true light. I'm revealing the source of the light so people will rightly recognize who the light is. It's not me, it's Jesus. So John and Jesus, it's much a similar relationship of the moon and the sun right? The moon, it's simply, when you think about it, just this big chunk of lifeless rock up in the sky. It's pretty much it, right? The sun shines its rays, and what does the moon do? It simply reflects those rays back to the earth. There's no spark of light in the moon. It's just reflecting the light of the sun. And it's temporary, because day comes, and that reflection isn't needed anymore. Same way for us. Same way for John. We simply reflect the light of the Son, Jesus Christ. We reveal the source of the true light. This is our mission now. This is what we're to do now. And so the true light is Christ. We simply reveal the light. John says that Jesus, the true light, gives light to everyone. Now, That's a phrase that's easy to kind of stumble over here a little bit because John is not saying that, hey, the light has come, the light of Christ comes in such a way that every person of all time, everyone receives the light, walks in the light, understands, that's not what he's saying. He's not speaking about internal illumination, that we all just get it. No, we know that the world is dark. John just said the world is dark last week. We looked at that. was a world full of darkness, but the light wins. And we go on from here and we see, we just read, that the light is rejected. We understand there's darkness. It's not internal illumination that he's talking about. Instead, what John's referring to when we are all, when the light is given to everyone, it's objective revelation, right, that the whole world can see. As Paul would put it this way, so that all men are without excuse, because the light has been given to everyone. It's as if someone walked into a dark room, flips on a switch, and boom, the light comes on. No, no one has excuse anymore. The light is on. So now what are you going to do with the light? That essentially becomes the question. Do you receive the light? Do you walk in the light? Or do you retreat back into the darkness and close the door in your closet and put a blanket over your head or something? And just kind of, I just like the darkness better. This upsets things. This reveals things that I'd rather just stay hidden. So I just want to keep staying in the dark. These are the two choices at the end of the day. Two choices. Receive the light or reject the light. And so John, he's gonna, he talks about these. And the nature of these two choices is so stark. That it's offensive to many people now the aim of us as christians is never to be offensive right we never say you know i'm just going to offend people today no no that's not the aim the aim is never to be offensive but sometimes the gospel of christ is offensive it always has been offensive and one of the reasons for that is because the gospel paints clearly that there is light and there is darkness very clear, very cut and dry. There is light and there is darkness. Now, sometimes we wish that there was like this happy ground in the middle, you know? Maybe I can just find some comfortable shade here a little bit where, you know, Jesus can be savior. He can save me from all the darkness, but, you know, I can still live how I want to live because I got my priorities. I got things I want to do and I just want to live my life. He can be savior. He can rescue. but I just like this comfortable shade right here. The only problem with that is Jesus, God, the Bible, leaves no room for that. There's no room for that in Scripture. He's either a Lord, you either receive him as Lord, or you don't receive him at all. It's, it's light or it's darkness. And we're happy to think that we're all in the light. It kind of makes us feel that we're all in the light. But the fact is that some retreat back to the darkness, the light has been flipped on. It's been revealed. But what do you do with the light? That, that becomes the question. So that's what we're focusing on here. What do you do with the light? Because here we are. We're presented with the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the question becomes, what do you do with it? Because if you do nothing, if it makes no difference, that's not receiving the light. It's not walking in the light. So the true light has come. There's actually no question about that. You know, I, I think we do need to start there. Did the true light really come? Is what John's saying true? And there's no question about that. The true light came. No objective person, no thoughtful person, debates the point that Jesus existed. That he lived on this earth, that he walked, that he was a real man. No thinking serious person even rejects that notion. And this goes all the way back because of the sources that we have. uh, Roman sources like Swintonius, writing in the early part of the second century, he refers to Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, and he wrote this, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Crestus is a reference to Christ. There's also the Roman historian Tacitus, in his book, The Annals of History, he wrote this, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guild and inflicted the most exquisite torture on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the most extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Even the Roman historian Tacitus, what he's saying is, yes, there was this man... Christ, he was this great instigator. Now we have all these Christians, they're an abomination, we hate them. But he's giving reference to, yes, Jesus is a real person. But it's not just Roman historians. Non-Christian Jewish sources, Babylonian Talmuds, Palestinian Talmuds, the great celebrated Jewish historian Josephus. He makes passing reference to Jesus several times. He refers to uh, Jesus as he was called the Christ, Jesus the brother of James, things like this. And that's just ancient sources. You skip ahead to present day and you see the same thing by radical skeptics who hate Christianity. They, they might debate all things about Christianity. One thing they do not debate is whether Jesus was a real person. Take Bart Ehrman, for example. Okay? If you're familiar with Bart Ehrman, he's a noted professor down at Chapel Hill, and he says this, the reality of whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. So even radical skeptics concede, yes, Jesus was a real person which makes everybody have to ask the question, what do you do with him? Or as John puts it this way, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Some did not receive him. Others did. And so what is our response? And if you reject, it is a more serious offense than you could ever possibly comprehend. And if you receive... It is a greater miracle than you could ever possibly imagine. But that is the black and white choice, rejection or reception. John says rejection can happen for two reasons. One, the light goes unrecognized. It just goes unrecognized. Paul actually talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says that Satan is working to blind people so that they will not see the light of the gospel. And the blinders that Satan uses can be numerous, and they are. they are many. They can be good things. It could be the success, intelligence, other people, uh, the approval of man, whatever. It it could be religion. It could be all kinds of things. It could also be bad things, terrible things that happen in our life, and broken families, whatever the case may be. It could be bad, but they're all blinders. And the result is just the same. Blinders happen at Christmas time all the time, right? You look at Christmas oh, it's the holiday jingle, you got the feel good movies, the lights, the decorations, everything is so nice. And Jesus, you know, he's just a sweet, cuddly, cute little baby, quiet, silent baby in the manger. We like him just silent and quiet there. We'll sing songs about that. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus, he laid down a sweet head. And we can be comfortable with him there. But what John's gospel, as he introduces us to Christ, he's introducing us to Jesus so that when we behold Jesus in the manger, we understand that the one looking back at us is the preexistent son of God who doesn't just stay silent and quiet but actually speaks into every moment of every day. He doesn't just say bound up and swaddled up in swaddling clothes, but he's the one who forms and sustains all of creation. This is how John invites us to see Jesus, to understand who he is. And if you don't receive him like this, if he just stays as a quiet, silent baby who has no authority in your life, you're blinded to who he is. You're blinded to who he actually is. John says there's another way of rejection, though. John says that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The Greek word there, paralimbano, it literally means this, that they did not accept him to themselves. Like, hey, here he is, and they flat out reject him. No interest in exploring, maybe he is the Messiah, no, no, no. It's rejection. The one they had prayed for, the one they had longed for, the one they had been so desperately awaiting. He shows up and they say, my life's busy enough. I've got my religious structure, we've got political structure, got things going on. No, you're, you're not coming into my life because it upsets the apple cart. It upsets my priorities. It upsets how I live. And you know, the same thing happens today, right? There are people who I don't want to know. I just don't, I got my life the way I want to live it. I'm happy, I'm comfortable, things are good. He would upset all that. He would change my priorities. I would have to look at my life differently, reevaluate every, if that were, so it's rejection. Whether people reject because they are blinded or whether people reject because they will not accept Jesus to themselves for who he is, it doesn't matter. The result, the darkness, is all the same. And it is more devastating than they could ever comprehend. And so our response as Christians to this news is to pray. We pray. That's that's the beginning. We pray for open eyes and open hearts. Pray for open eyes for people to actually rightly recognize Jesus for who he is. They're not blinded by all the schemes. At the same time, pray for open hearts that would allow Jesus to reorient their lives, to redirect their lives, to repurpose their lives, to redeem, to reclaim their lives. You want to make a difference in the lives of people? You better be praying for people. We see this modeled in the life of Christ, right? As we're going through Mark's gospel, we've noticed how many times that Jesus just gets away, he prays. And then we see how that prayer conditions his heart and the winsome joy in which he lived life how he was comfortable and excited to be around a crowd and could speak to the masses, and how he was intentional and focused in listening and hearing and ministering even to the one because he loved people. You see, you follow the life of Christ, and you see how he weeps over cities. You see his love and care and his compassion, his joy, his winsome nature because he loves people, how he would do the will of the Father people so we pray for open eyes and open hearts but we keep reading because there is also this reception verse 12 that you receive the true light and it is a great miracle you know sometimes you go through and you read the miracles of scripture and you see these things you know in the old testament water coming from the rock and God speaking through a burning bush and a talking donkey and things like this you flip ahead to the new testament and And here's water turned into wine, and the blind seeing, and the deaf hearing, and the lame walking. Oh, man, I want miracles like that. You understand? The miracle of believing in Christ is the greatest miracle of all. It's the greatest miracle of all. It's a changed life. It changes everything. John says it like this, that all who receive him, that is to believe in his name, now, That belief, as John will explain it, is not mere intellectual assent. It's not saying, yes, I believe Jesus is real. Yes, I think he's the son of God. Yes, check that box. Yes, now I'm just going to live how I want. It is not that. It is not just an academic exercise or anything like this. Not, yes, I'll sign on to that. I think that's right. That's not belief for John. As as he shows, if you were to go through his gospel, light, darkness, and what belief looks like and receiving looks like, this belief is, I will treasure his name. I will revere his name. I I will turn from the world, I will turn from darkness, and I will follow his name because I want my life to be identified by his name. I want to be directed by his name. I want to be defined by his name. That's receiving. That's believing. And he says that if you've done that, if if there's this reception, this belief, then you get this right of being called a child of God. It's not a birthright. To be called a child of God is not a birthright. Okay? It... uh, you have the right, the authority, the privilege, the honor of being a child of God. Sometimes we hear that language and it just kind of falls on deaf ears because, you know, our, court, our culture tells us we're all children of God. And we sing songs about it, you know, hey, we're all God's children. And it sounds so wonderful. But according to John, it's simply not the case. Being a child of God is not a birthright. It's a born-again right. It's an adoptive right. It's a right that must be granted. We're not all children of God, John says. And he actually uses very precise language here as he's talking about this. He uses one term for Jesus, for son, and then he uses a different term for everyone else, children. It's as if he's saying this, that God has one son by nature, Jesus, and he has many, 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 many children by adoption. That's all of us. One son by nature, many children by adoption. You know, we live in a world that's consumed with rights. You know, I have my rights, these people have their rights, you know, don't infringe on our rights, this bill of rights, oh, that's fine, all, all those things are great. The most important right, though, the right that we should be most concerned about is have you been given the right to be called children of God? And so how do you get that right? How does that happen? How do you receive him? How do you go from a a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? How do you go from stone-cold dead to spiritually alive and breathing? How does that happen? Do you just wake up and decide one day, today, I think I'll be alive, you know, today, I think I'll be born again. Dead people don't do that. You understand? Dead people don't just say, you know, today I think I'm going to be alive. The image of Scripture is that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Not that we're struggling. Not that, they're, not that we're weak. Not that we're infirm. Not that we're sick. Not that we're dying. No, the image in Scripture is Dead. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. So do you see what it says in verse 13? This is very important. That if you believe in his name, you have been born not of blood. Not of blood. It's not up to your ancestry. So you can't look back and say, oh, I had this great ancestry. I come from a great family, great parents, grandparents, great-grandparents all the way back. Or you can't look back and say, man, you, you come from a really tough line. It's like brokenness all over the place. You can't look and say, okay, Jew, Gentile, that doesn't matter. It's not ethnicity. It's not socioeconomic status. It's not, well, I had all these brave, I come from a brave line of warriors and everything. Or, man, I just came from broken cowards and I'm kind of embarrassed of this. None of that matters. It's not of blood. It's not of blood. Nor is it the will of the flesh. It's not based on human choice. You aren't born again because you decided, I think I'll be born again. It's not based on that. It's not the will of the flesh. Nor is it the will of man, he says. It's not based on human initiative. It wasn't a man and a woman. They didn't get together and say, you know, let's have a baby, and then Jesus was born. And in the same way, it's not us. Like, let's just try harder. Let's live better, and then I'll be made alive. It's not the will of man. It's not of blood. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. All of those things do not get you born again. Look at the last three words of verse 13. But of God. But of God. It's his initiative. It's all of God. The new birth, to use a theological term, is monergistic. Okay, that is, it's not synergistic. Synergistic means with. Okay? That God did his part, and then we come along and we do our part, and then together, you know, we have this great teamwork, and because of this great teamwork, we're boom, we're born again, we're saved. God does his, boom, awesome. And John says it's not that. It's not synergistic. He says it's monergistic. Mono means one. It's all the will of God, it's the initiative of God, it's the act of of God. It's God working. The new birth, John says, is of God. Now, some of you may be saying, Yes, but Steve, I think when you started, you were saying it's a choice. Reception or rejection sounded like a choice. Now it doesn't sound like a choice. Listen, if you lean toward the more reformed side of theology, Choice is a good biblical word. Okay? If you lean toward the more Arminian side, understand of God. That the whole thing is of God. This is good. This is biblical. This is right. You must be okay with the tension. This is the mystery of the gospel, right? It's, It's the mystery of the gospel. But one thing we understand is this that. Choice, yes. Paul would write, though, that a faith that we have in making that choice is not even of ourselves. He says it's of God, so we can't boast about it. He says the same thing. It's of God. It's all of God. And so this new birth, it is the mystery of the gospel, meaning we can't fully explain it. And that's a good thing. You know, if, whenever you can fully under, explain God... Okay, whenever you can just, okay, I can explain all things of God, then you're God, okay? And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. Right? It is healthy and it is good to say, there's some, t- I can't make sense of this completely good, because that means He's still God. It is the offense of the gospel because this is of God salvation, new birth, it is of God. And this is an offense of the gospel because it's not of us. We can't do it. And that's offensive to some because we would like to control our own destiny, masters of our own universe, this type of thing. But it's of God. It's also the great hope of the gospel because it's of God. It's not dependent upon you. It's not dependent upon me. I can't earn this. I can't make this. It's of God and praise God that it's of him because He, what he reclaims, he reclaims perfectly. What he redeems, he redeems perfectly. What he saves, he saves perfectly. I don't know about you, but I don't do anything perfectly, right? Everything he does, when it's of God, it's perfect. It's his initiative. It's his design. What do we do? We receive the light. Receive the light. And that really is the question this Christmas season. You know, with all the Music of the season, all the lights and all the decorations, all the beauty, everything that's going on. The question is, what do you do with the true light of God? Or to put it another way, are you a Christian? Not what people would say about you, not what values do you espouse or who you align with or anything like that. No, not what box will you check. It's not that, at least not according to John's gospel. It's do you believe in his name? In other words, Do you treasure his name? Do you revere his name? Do you turn from darkness toward his light so that you will walk in his light, so that you will be defined by his name, identified by his name? Because once you do that, like John, your mission in life becomes crystal clear. Here's what I'm to do. I'm just to live as Jesus lived, he, be conformed into his image. I understand who he is. I understand who I am. I, just, I understand my reason for being, my purpose in life. Just like Edmund Haley, everything becomes crystal clear once you believe in his name. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that it's of you, that it's not of us. Uh, Because God, what you do, you do perfectly. And what we do, eh, it's never perfect. So God, help us to walk in your light. And God, we recognize we need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.